0: Haul the roll and go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and
1: where am I to go? Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go podcast. Today, before we start the show, I would like to bring up some business things that have kind of been on my mind so that you can know where to get more, Where Am I to Go? First off, I'd like to talk about the Facebook page at Where Am I to Go podcast. It's on Facebook, and we've been posting some wonderful pictures of some of the places that we've been and some of the adventures that we've had. Not everything that we go and do is made into a podcast, and so we take pictures at different places and post those pictures so that you guys can enjoy some of the different places we've been also i really am interested in listener feedback i have an email address at podcast at gmail.com again that is whereamitogopodcast at gmail.com i would love to hear some of the listeners comments and some of their ideas of places that might be interesting to visit and go and do <clears throat> today we are in tucson arizona And we are at the Titan Missile Museum, just south of Tucson, about uh, 15, 20 miles. And it's where the Titan missiles were deployed or, or were stationed, I guess. And today I happen to be here with Mike. This is a museum that I have wanted to see for the last three or four times I've visited Tucson. Mike said he'd take some time today and talk with me. I just got through doing the tour. It's fresh in my mind and we are sitting down and and having a conversation. Welcome, Mike, to Where Am I To Go podcast.
0: Well, thanks for stopping by, and thanks for uh, wanting to know more about the museum.
1: This place is awesome. It's it's a phenomenal museum.
0: So this is the only remaining Titan II missile silo in the United States.
1: What happened to the other ones?
0: They were decommissioned uh, as part of the 1982 SALT agreement that we had with the, the Soviet Union at the time. So... That was an arms reduction treaty okay. that that uh, we bought in on, and uh, the Russians did as well. So the 54 Titan II missiles that were stationed in the United States, we had 18 of them around Tucson here. We had 18 around Little Rock, Arkansas, and 18 around Wichita, Kansas. That comprised oh, wow. all 54 of the Titan II, which was the biggest and baddest ICBM that the United States ever deployed. Nine megaton warhead on mm-hmm. each one of these things. Nine million tons of TNT.
1: That's a lot. That is a lot. I think the tour guide said something to the effect of uh, 30 times or 40 times what dropped equ- with with both Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Yes, yes. <coughs> these <coughs> were, unbelievable. These
0: were very powerful weapons. Uh, Airburst at uh, 14,000 feet would result in about 900 square miles of total destruction.
1: Wow. Wow. That's not even fathomable. <coughs> and it's a big missile.
0: It is a big missile. It's 103 feet tall, uh, 10 foot in diameter. Uh, it's a two-stage missile, uh, fully fueled, sitting in the launch deck would have weighed about 330,000 pounds. Wow. At liftoff.
1: And how it, did you get it down inside the the silo, the missile the, silo? The
0: missiles were built Um, by Martin Marietta Corporation, which in turn became Lockheed Martin. Okay. That we've all heard of today, Lockheed Skunk Works. But back in the day, they were the ones that made the airframe. So the missiles were flown uh, to the various bases, uh, Tucson here being Davis-Monthan. They were semi-assembled, then brought out to the site here, the first stage would be lowered down into the silo with a big crane, empty. It okay. doesn't have the fuel in it yet, so it's not going to be that heavy. So, first stage goes in, second stage goes in, then the warhead reentry vehicle goes in last. Then okay. the missile was fueled up, um, systems integrated, everything came up online, and um, that's how they got it in there.
1: Okay. And now when you say three stages, you've got your missile head on the top and two other fuel stages, is that correct? Right.
0: We had the first stage, the big first stage, Uh, two big rocket engines on that uh, would take it up. That would burn for about 150 seconds. That's all? That's all. Second stage would ignite, burn for about 180 seconds, push that missile, uh, the second stage with the warhead, 8,000-pound warhead, up into space. Um, way up above the um, um, the space station. Okay. Uh,
1: oh, so they went way in.
0: They the air. went way up into space. Okay. Way up. Apogee engines cut out. Missile starts to come back down. It's going about fifteen thousand miles an hour when it starts to reenter the atmosphere.
1: Oh wow! And so it, it had stages like we see on the Apollo rockets. So exactly. one stage falls off. The right. second stage falls off. Exactly. Did they care where the stages landed at all, or?
0: No, it's World War III. We're not going to care. We're not,
1: we're not caring where they drop. Okay. No. Wow. The
0: whole thing was to get that warhead across in 30 minutes after launch to the Soviet Union, somewhere in, in the Soviet Union. So, okay. Um,
1: so in other words, I didn't die of the nuclear blast, but I died when the rocket landed on top of me. Well, yeah, you would have <laughs> might have been, and you might have been the fortunate
0: one, actually, because World War III with that kind of uh, those kind of bombs going off would not have been a good thing. You and I would no, not be here no. talking today.
1: The nuclear winter and fallout would have yes. would have taken care of whatever the bomb yeah. itself didn't take care of. That's just that, that's such a hard concept to to grasp. You, it is
0: nowadays. It, well, it, it, we're 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 so far removed. I mean, to some extent, uh it was just it was the times. It was it was what was going on. It was the geopolitical stuff. That was happening, and there was a lot of fear because we didn't know as much, Uh, and now we have the technology to, you know, we can know what's going on within a matter of minutes halfway around the world, whereas back in the 60s, you know, we were blind to some extent. We we had spy planes, and we had some very early spy satellites, and we had spies, of course, that were, were feeding information out of the Soviet Union, but there was there was a lot of things that uh, just terrified the United States because we were under the impression that the Russians had way more, and their capability at the time was, was uh, exceeding ours, which later on turned out to be not the case. Um, they were was, better at playing cards. They were better at playing cards a little bit, yeah. Wow. So that drove the hysteria, what was, what was known as the missile gap. Okay. And, and that's one of the reasons why the Titan IIs were, were developed and rushed into into production and into service.
1: And this was based on a, on a theory or a principle of mutual destruction. If exactly. they fired, uh, they would destroy us. If we fired, we would destroy them. But and if both it, of us had all the missiles, it would try and keep something in check. Exactly.
0: Either one, either the United States or Russia, Russia being the provocator in, in all cases would have launched all of their missiles at us. Okay, they knew then with, with this Titan II and the systems that came on afterwards that even if their missiles were in the air, even if their missiles were 10 or 15 minutes away from starting to impact, they knew that these Titan Twos would be in the air within three minutes. And Within one,
1: three minutes? Yes,
0: three minutes. That's wow. all it took. To launch one of these once once the signal was once the signal came from SAC Strategic Air Command to as you saw on the tour to get into that safe and decode the message that came through uh, the crews practiced they had three minutes to decode that message get into that safe get that stuff out of there and turn those
1: keys. Wow, three minutes. Yep, that's unbelievable.
0: Yeah, it is.
1: Wow, that's just. Okay, so, so let's talk about the museum a little okay. bit. As, yep. as, as we come through the front doors, you've got a gift shop on one side, and you have another display that has the, the top, the, the nose cone. The re-entry vehicle. Re-entry vehicle, okay. Right. Uh, sitting there, and then you've got several displays all the way on around of, uh, of different pictures of the missile. Uh, different uh, construction right. sites. You've also got a, a breakdown model of how the silo was constructed as far as right. the rooms mm-hmm. and all of that type of stuff which gives you a pretty good idea of what you're going to see on the tour.
0: Right, if you do the underground portion of the tour. Right. Yeah and that's really the best, I mean that's the reason everybody comes out here is to go down into the silo. Well of course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why would you go to a missile silo if you weren't going down? That's right. Other That's than right. other than there are some people I, I did notice that were elderly or or uh, weren't able to walk down the what was it two hundred and forty stairs? No,
0: it's fifty five stairs. Oh, five. Fifty five stairs. stairs down. You go, you're about forty feet underground. Okay. When you get down there, and we're exclusively on level two, so that is the level where the you go through the big blast doors that you saw six thousand pounds apiece. Uh, all and we' what
1: we're, we're talking about doors that are a foot wide yeah all steel yes I have have cylinders different. for the locks that are mm-hmm. probably eight inch round
0: pro moly pins that that were retracted out of the edges of the door uh that would allow the door to be pulled open the doors didn't open by themselves
1: right and and you had four different lock chambers exactly in that
0: right you have the two that uh you come through when you're on the tour. Though The first two that you come to are, are actually, that is the interface between the top side and the hardened part of the silo 40 feet underground. Now, those two first two doors were designed uh, to protect the silo and obviously the crew from a nuclear detonation up above.
1: Okay. And then the other two doors were?
0: Those two doors were installed to protect the crew from... In case something happened to the missile. If the missile malfunctioned uh, and blew up, uh, that could as well ruin your day uh, just as easily as a nuclear bomb going off upstairs.
1: And so if that thing blew up in the silo, the the men that were inside the control room would have been kept safe from that explosion? Yes. That's hard to fathom. Well,
0: now we're not talking the warhead going off. We're, okay. we're just talking the the fuel and the oxidizer blowing up.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. No. If the if the bomb went off, that it would have been game over.
1: Okay. Yeah. I was I was having a hard time comprehending that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Those those were put in there to protect the crew in case something bad happened down in the missile.
1: Okay. And, uh, and so the the way the tour goes is you come on down a set of stairs, you uh, enter. An area where you can see all kinds of—you see the big doors, yeah—the blast, what about. they call the
0: blast lock area,
1: and then you see uh, some big shock absorbers mm-hmm. and uh, springs and some of that type of stuff that's designed for the building. Uh, explain that a little bit. So,
0: the sites were engineered to withstand uh, an indirect hit, uh, an airburst, chances if uh, the Russians did get one over on us, and were able to get missiles. Close here now. A direct hit on the silo would have wiped the crew and the and the 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 missile. Everything it would have it would have ruined everything. But an indirect hit, uh, uh, some miles away, or an airburst, uh, those springs were designed so that the, everything inside there could move a little bit. Inside the launch control center, you saw the eight right. eight big giant springs. That whole portion, three levels. You go in, you're on the middle level of the launch control center. Um, You have an upstairs part where there is a crew rest. They had a little kitchen, a bedroom. Down below, you had all the equipment for the radios and the 28-volt power supplies that powered the missile. So in the event of one of those uh, bombs going off upstairs and the ground is going to shake those springs were designed that that whole portion of the, the silo could move up and down upwards of 16 inches. Wow. And from there, everything from in the launch control center all the way down that big, long cableway, the cableway right. that and connects. That's, that's
1: probably, what, 100, 150 feet long? Yes. It's, about it's, it's a long hallway. It's about
0: 150 feet. That whole thing was the lifeline between where the missile was and the launch control center. So all the electrical, plumbing, The water, everything ran down that cableway. That cableway was also supported on springs. I don't know if you remember. Yes, I I was
1: looking at them going all the way down through. And so even the missile
0: was on springs. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. You had uh, four big springs uh, inside the silo that the missile sat on. Uh, And so obviously... That's the, the thing that you want to protect, and you want to uh, be able to launch that missile. If the missile wasn't on springs and you had an event, the missile would be, we- de- would be uh, either explode or uh, not be able to launch. So right. um, it was very well engineered. The, uh, it, it is just amazing to go down there. Uh, there isn't a day goes by that I don't go down there. And see something else that it just uh, amazes how they thought of everything that they did. And you have to remember, this was all designed in the very late 50s, early 60s. That
1: is amazing.
0: So we didn't have uh, uh, super-duper computer-aided drafting. Uh, things like that. We had these deals called slide rules and T-squares that all the engineering was drawn on. Right. And very, very rudimentary computers that could could help us do stuff like that. So uh, not only is it just uh, cool because of the missile, but the engineering that went into this and the way these sites were constructed is something that you really need to see to appreciate.
1: Oh, yeah. And you have backup systems on Mm -hmm. everything. Everything's got at least two... Uh, mechanisms to work. you got right. two sets of speakers, well, actually four speakers, but two different sets at two different tables. You've got uh, doubles on all of your computers that are in the control room. Pretty much. Or, I don't know if those were really computers. They look like the old computer room that you see on the NASA uh, flight. Yeah. Uh, a
0: lot of what you saw down there was uh, the, the <coughs> systems. They weren't computers. The, okay. The computer for the missile uh, was a... Um, uh done uh in two stages the very early uh guidance system was very very analog okay um uh, and that was replaced in 1978 with an upgraded uh guidance system that was a little easier to maintain and uh, and also to get the targeting information into the the missile itself but uh, there was a lot of redundancy um there was um Many of the communication antennas uh, that the site used to get the signals from uh, either the wing commander's post, Strategic Air Command, uh, or even the Doomsday plane back in the day, uh, we have uh, antennas that were stored down in hardened silos underground. So, oh, wow. in the event of a first strike, and the the stationary antennas that were above ground would have been taken out. So. In that event, uh, the crew could push a button and raise um, three antennas up out of the ground oh, to, really? to, to be able to maintain uh, community, to get that launch order out. That was, that was the whole thing. They were concerned about getting that message to launch the missile. in a. And again, uh, being wary that the Russian missiles are already in the air. They could be as close as 10 minutes away. And so it was very imperative that the communication line was kept open.
1: Okay, that's way cool. Okay, so so now we're down there. We've talked about the long haul going over to the uh, missile silo itself, but you have the control room. And the control room, I thought, was quite small. But when you get down there, it's really fairly decent sized. It's, it's probably a 25 by 25 or maybe even 35 by 35, kind of a round room. It, it
0: is a round room. It's a dome. It's actually the the roof that you cannot see up above. If um, you'd have gone upstairs where the crew rest was, the the, the roof is, or the ceiling is domed. Okay. A, it's all concrete. And it was domed like that to shed uh, some of the uh, the intensity of, a, of an airburst blast. Okay. Um, so it, it is fairly good size, but you have to keep in mind too that, um, and as you saw from the, the short video that we play that talks about uh, the, these sites, it was a four-man crew. The, those four right. guys, their whole job was to launch the missile. Now, as you saw the complexity of this site, you can imagine the maintenance that had to be done on this thing from day to day. No, I can't imagine the maintenance. (laughs) So there could have been upwards of uh, 10, 15 people around any given day, depending on what the missile, if it needed to be worked on or something. Um, So the room was for four people pretty good size but right. uh, you remember you're going to be there with those big steel doors shut for 24 hours
1: and you didn't come out what happens if you got sick or or you had a medical emergency or well, something where you
0: they would bring somebody in from the wing commander's post up in Tucson if okay. uh, depending on what kind of an emergency it was they could replace one person and it wasn't that the doors were locked and you couldn't get not like a bank lock where okay. you couldn't get out of there i mean you could uh, and there was people, there could be people, maintenance guys coming and going at any given time okay. to, to do something. So um, but talking with um, uh, the um, the guys that that actually used to to be in there, one of our tour guides was actually a ballistic uh, missile technician. Oh, and really? uh, his recounts of being down in that room for twenty four hours at a time um, was rather cold. And very, very noisy because of the 28-volt power supplies down on level 3. Those old um, AC converter things made a horrendous whine. And uh, a lot of the crews later on uh, complained of hearing loss. I would imagine. That was a a, a side effect of being down there with that constant whine. Uh, 24 hours a day, you've got that... The radio going off from time to time. Uh, it was not a kickback. Oh, I'm just going to sit here and and watch things go. It was uh, it was it was a different sort of uh, assignment.
1: Okay. Now they worked 24 hours. Does that mean that they had to be awake all 24 hours, or were they able to take naps every five, six hours for a half hour, or, or because it, it just seems to me like you wouldn't want Somebody on the 23rd hour to be in charge of something this, this critical and this uh, controlled. I mean, you had two guys had to open up an envelope at the exact same time. Two guys had to push buttons or turn keys exactly. at the exact same time. Right. And I know how I function after about 18 hours of no sleep. It's sometimes not really good. My brain right. starts fogging up. I can't imagine at 23 hours on a shift... Right and being alert enough to be able to handle all of the memory and the punching Mm. codes in and all of that in a precise, precision manner. Exactly. So
0: what took place was uh, the guys showed up here for their alert shift. That's what they call the 24-hour. So they would go down into the silo. They would be replacing the four guys that are down there. So first thing that's going to happen, they're going to do a two-hour tie-in with the crew that's leaving. And um, after that, uh, they would take up their, their alert shift. So um, 12 hours later into that shift, they would have to do another whole complete systems check to make sure everything about the missile was up and running uh, so that, again, if the message came through, they could launch it within three minutes. Now, um, in that control room, there had to be two people in that room at all times, and one of them had to be either the commander or the deputy commander. There had to be one officer and it could be the commander and the deputy commander there. If everything was working right, the two enlisted guys could go upstairs, catch a break, something like that. They would rotate around depending on what was going on in the silo and stuff like that. So, no, they were not all uh, focused 24 hours on that shift. There was, they didn't want them to get burnout like that. So, when the... um, when the message came into launch, let's say the, the, the commander was upstairs asleep, so the deputy commander's there, and then you've got one of the enlisted guys. Now, the two enlisted guys could copy the code. They could copy what they heard SAC telling them, and, and, and I don't know if right. you saw, there was those books that were always right. right there, a 41 alphanumeric message, so... The enlisted guy could copy the code, and obviously at that point, somebody is going to be yelling for the commander to get back downstairs because they can't get into the safe. Only the commander and deputy commander can get into okay. the safe. That's how they worked it. Now, the they say, you know, it's a 24-hour shift. Well, that turned into more like 36 hours when you really break it on down because by the time they, they knew what they were going to work, they would have to show up. Meet at the wing commander's post. Be briefed on what was going on. You know, that could have been um, we're on alert status or we're at DEFCON 2 or something like that or uh, 571-7, which is the designation of our missile site here. You guys are down for maintenance. Uh, That's going to take some time. They're going to have to drive out here. They're going to have to unload all their stuff. They do their shift. They're going to drive back up to Tucson, be debriefed, for probably an hour or so, um, so it did run more than just 24. Hours. Your job was more than that.
1: But they were able to get sleep in between, which they I were able to take that's a little good. break. So that's good. And then what? So so their week looked like they worked 24-hour shift or the 36 hours or whatever that ended up being. Then they ended up what with two days off or typically the way they uh, they described
0: or the their and however you want to look at it week by week, but they were in the silo seven to ten days a month, okay that's how they that's right. how they came up with it so they could have had a couple of days off. It was rare I mean they couldn't take like a week off or something right. like that unless they were on uh t d y or something like that so they had other something jo-
1: else. they had other jobs that they did besides just working the silo no no, that was that it. was all that they did
0: that they If you were a missileer, and that's what they called the guys in the Air Force, that that was, you didn't do anything else.
1: Wow, okay.
0: So commander and deputy commander obviously were commissioned officers. We knew they were going to be in the Air Force for 20 years. The the two enlisted guys were doing a four-year stint, obviously. Um, And if you were selected to be a missileer, the the enlisted guys, they were going to be doing that for four years. Uncle Sam and the Air Force spent exorbitant amount of money on their training right. and also their security clearances. So if you got picked to be a missileer and you got down there and a year later you said, "Well, oh, this isn't for me." Tough luck, buddy. You're, <laughs> you signed, you know, you said you were going to do this and you you will do it for 4 years.
1: Wow. Yeah. That-
0: now the commander and the deputy commander could have you know, they were commissioned officers, so they could have worked their way somewhere else, probably within the uh, within Strategic Air Command and in some kind of the missiles command or the missile systems command or something like that. So
1: Well, cool. Okay, so we've kind of covered what we see in the in the underground tour. Mm-hmm. Then we come back on up, and then you have uh above ground tour. Which is pretty interesting also. It's part of the admission fee if you're coming in to to do the missile tour. Right. But if you have uh, physical limitations where you can't walk up and down the the 55 stairs and uh, be able to do what you need to do there you could just take the outside tour for yeah, it's, half price i think
0: yeah it's about seven dollars yeah and um, it's it's
1: about 15 to get in or something so yeah yeah so. somewhere
0: around there so yes there there's stuff to look at um a couple of the really cool things is um the uh the viewing stand that we have set up um they um, they have the missile silo about halfway open, and uh, on that halfway open part, there is a glass um, kind of like a pyramid. It's a glass dome, if you will. It's not a dome, but you can walk up and actually look down. From the very, very top of the silo, you can see clear down to the, to the bottom. You can see the missile actually. You can in, see the whole missile. You can see the whole and missile. And you can see
1: all the way down to the bottom, which is nine stories down, right? Right. Right. Yeah. This, these silos are huge. It's Yeah, it's 150,
0: 150 feet from the top down to level eight. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very large thing. And then um, the missile that we have in the silo um, w- is not the missile that was here. Uh, it was not the, the, the actual tactical missile. The, the original one was taken out. The missile that you will see if you come was a training missile. That airframe was built specifically to train the maintenance crews on how to work on it. Oh. So not having the original missile is, is a bit of a deal, but since those missiles were fueled up with some very, very toxic chemicals hydrazine and dinitrogen tetroxide which were super corrosive to humans either getting it on your skin or breathing the vapors we didn't want any of that residual stuff being on the missile itself so uh getting back to that uh the missile that's in the silo the engines have been taken off of it and the engines are up top side so that you can walk around you can actually see the first the two big first stage engines the second-stage engines, and the little veneer rockets that uh, adjusted the trajectory as it started to come back into the atmosphere.
1: That's something else, as long as you're talking about trajectory. These missiles were set up and aimed at specific points. That that was their only mission, was to hit that one specific target wherever it was sent. Exactly. Because they didn't have the ability with... uh, GPS or anything to be able to change these things once they were fired. They, if if they, they were aimed at uh, Moscow, they were going to <clears throat> Moscow.
0: Exactly. They could not be uh, redirected in flight. Now, um, on the tour, you will see the, the the control console, and you will notice that there is a, a button that says Target 1, Target 2, and Target right. 3. Now, uh, prior to launch, it could be changed. the The missile's guidance system, the computer... Was loaded with three separate targets. So, in the event of um, whatever the um, uh, the war planners had decided for whatever scenario we were talking about, if uh, the crew is sitting there and and the missile is set to target two, we don't know where target two was. Nobody knows. Even the crew. Even did, today. She even said. today, the, the that is uh, kept a, a big secret. So. Um, had they wanted to change from Target 2 to Target 3 or Target 1, that could have been done uh, from decoding that message uh, from SAC Okay. and said that uh, for whatever reason, um, they needed to change the targeting. Um, but we have one big missile with one big warhead. It's only going to go to one place. But we did have the capability to to switch. you had three pla- you had one three, of, one three of choices. three targets right. were, going right. be, um, were' going to be we're gonna have a very bad day. The frozen pizza would not be frozen very long <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay and and so then we're 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 back up on top on the above ground tour. You've got it set up to where you've got a, a semi truck that would haul in the. The the fuel. The two chemicals, and the two chemicals were always loaded in the rocket, and then they were mixed at the time that they needed to be mixed. They were were mixed in
0: the combustion chamber. Right. So you have your two fuels. You have your fuel and your oxidizer. Um, What they used on the Titan II to allow it uh, to have that very, very short launch window was the use of what they call these hypergolic fuels.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: Hypergolic. Uh, in layman's terms, uh, I'm sure everybody has seen what happens when you put coke and mentos together. Right, right. It's an instantaneous thing. So, missile did not need a spark, uh, a fuse, or anything like that. The, what what made the missile go was valves that opened up, pushed that fuel and that oxidizer into the combustion chamber of the, the rocket engine, and it was instantaneous.
1: Wow. So you were able to load all those chemicals right. on, to, on the surface through... Right, piping
0: and everything. Piping and down, everything. down on level 8, there's the, the rooms where they actually, the, the chemicals were... And they had to be kept apart. It, you notice here at the site, we, we only have the, the fuel trailer. Now, the oxidizer trailer is, is way on the other side of the silo because if those, if those chemicals came together, you would have one heck of a fire instantaneously. So it was very, very dangerous in that respect. Not only was, the, but, the, but the, um, the fumes as well was a big thing. And, and as you went down uh, from the launch control center down toward the silo, you may have noticed those environmental suits that were hanging. Right. Oh, yeah. And so the crews that, that had to fuel and defuel the rocket or the missile uh, had to have those, uh, those suits on at all times because if any of that splashed on you or you inhaled any of those vapors, it was uh, lights out.
1: Wow. Wow, pretty risky job.
0: Yeah, there was uh, several guys that that met a very uh, grisly end uh, with that that fuel and oxidizer.
1: Wow, that's not cool.
0: But uh, we uh, are going to get more of the equipment back down here. Uh, We're actually doing some uh, revamping of the whole outside site. right now. uh, Hopefully within this next year, we will have the oxidizer trailer back out here and some of the ground support trucks that you would have seen if the missile had been going through, let's say they were upgrading the guidance system or they were changing the warhead out or doing something with uh, whatever. There was quite a few vehicles that could have been out here uh, when they were doing heavy maintenance on the missile.
1: Okay. You guys are open uh, every weekday. Seven days a week. Oh, seven days we're, a week. We're
0: open seven days a week. Okay. Uh, right now until uh, June. June through September, we're closed on Mondays and Tuesdays.
1: Okay. And then you're open from 9 till first tour.
0: First tour is at 10. Last tour is at 4 o'clock. Uh, okay. Uh, Monday through Friday, we do tours uh, on the hour. Uh, we're going to start doing some half-hour tours on Mondays and Thursdays. And then on Friday, Saturday, and Sundays, we do tours every half hour.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And, and the tours are fantastic. The tour guide that we had did a wonderful job today explaining a lot of things mm-hmm. uh, and, and had a lot of kind of personal stories that I'm sure she heard from people that had worked down there yep. that were a lot of fun. This museum is one that you have to come experience. Uh, We've talked a lot about it. We've talked more probably about the Titan Missile Program than what we have actually the museum and and some of that, which is also covered in in her speech. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's well worth the visit. It's what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes south of Tucson? 20 minutes south
0: of Tucson. It's five minutes off uh, I-19. Very, very easy to get to. There's it's a pretty drive, even. Yeah, there's so. restaurants and stuff down here. Uh, mountains about uh, twelve miles away. Very pretty area up there. And uh, yeah, anybody that's interested, come on out, say hi, do a tour. You'll uh, you won't forget it.
1: Okay, you guys take reservations on your yes. tours too. If yeah. you want to call in early, what what who did, in order to set up a reservation? When we showed up, we had to wait an hour to be able to get into the next available reservation right? and people so, that were just behind us had to wait two hours they weren't going to be able to get intel too
0: right so so the way it works is because of the and, and you saw oh the tight there, spaces there's tight spaces down there we we typically don't take more than 26 people on a tour okay so the tours will fill up if you're going to walk in um you, there is the ability to make reservations on our website Uh, titanmissilemuseum.com or titanmissilemuseum.org. It's very easy to find on the Internet. There's a link on our site. You can go, you can make a reservation, you can pay for your tickets. You show up here, you're guaranteed a spot. Um, If you do walk in, uh, you run the risk of of having the, depending on what time you show up, uh, of having to wait a little bit. Um, But
1: but, even at that, the wait wasn't bad. We were able to go do our, our own walking tour. And spend a little bit of time in the gift shop and look at the other displays before actually hooking up with a, a tour guide to go down into the side right
0: you you can do the uh, top side tour right or it, actually it's just walking around and looking at stuff. You can do that. Um, you can spend a good half hour reading everything the exhibits in the in the visitor center and walking around outside uh, to. Uh, easily spend a half an hour doing that and then be ready to go on the tour on the
1: tour yes okay well i so appreciate you taking your time today mike to talk to me this has been great my pleasure your museum is awesome and i'm excited uh to tell my friends more about it and the way i finish my podcast out as i say the world is full of wonder this one happens to not necessarily be a natural wonder this one is uh A phenomenal engineering wonder. Uh, The whole space program, Cold War, really makes you wonder.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) But everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. Great.
0: All the rolling go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?